0: well a family goes to the holy land a man his wife uh, the kids and his mother-in-law and the mother-in-law was sick when they got over there she got really sick sadly tragically she died they visited the funeral home and the funeral home director said hey a couple of options for you guys uh, for five thousand dollars we can ship her body home for five hundred dollars we can have a funeral right here we can bury her right here in the holy land hoping to entice them for that and the man said look uh i don't even have to think about it five thousand dollars let's ship her home and the funeral director said okay but for five hundred dollars right here in the Holy Land, and the man grabs the funeral director by the collar and says, Look, 2,000 years ago, y'all buried a man here and he rose again on the third day. I'm not taking any chances on this one. If you're sitting next to your mother-in-law, just lean over and give her a, give her a hug, give her a handshake, something like that. Hopefully, there'll be some unity in the room. Hey, let's uh, together, uh, this is going to be a trick in a congregation so large, but let's read the word together, Matthew chapter 10. And uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 28 verses 1 to 10. It's coming up on the screen. And let let us uh, join together. You know, when you're reading it or I'm reading it, we can go kind of fast. But with a congregation so large, let's uh, take that congregational pace as we read the word together and set the tone for our morning. Matthew 28, 1 to 10. You guys ready? You guys ready? Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen as He said. Come see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. You guys crushed it. So much better than the nine thirty. Not that we sit in judgment on them. Hey, I want to show you I want to show you a photo. A few months ago I was coming out of the back bedroom Seated uh, to put on my shoes. Uh, By the way, that's my my wife's shoe there. Mine's more manly shoes, are just outside the screen here. But anyway, I sat down and what do I sit beside? A spider. How, How many of you? Okay, show of hands on that How many of you are afraid of spiders? Like you, like me, for days you would be checking your shoes, right, to make sure. I mean, thorough inspection of the shoes, throwing it against the walls, you know, making sure that there's no spider in it. How many of you are afraid of spiders? Okay, show of hands. How many of you are afraid of snakes? Yeah, there you go. How many of you are afraid of storms? Show of hands. How many of you are afraid of heights? Some of you just got your hand up the whole time. How many of you are afraid of public speaking? Yeah, okay. How many of you are afraid of enclosed spaces? Example would be elevator, parking garage, the trunk of my car. Uh, you're You're afraid, yeah. Okay, not a show of hands on this one. How many of you are afraid of death? There's a couple of thoughts when it comes to death that rolls through our minds to varying degrees, of course, but here they are. We we wonder, when will I die and how will I die? I've got a group of men that I circle up with uh, one night a week. It's some men just to share life, to talk about the battles that men face. And, and one guy came, he was new, he was invited, and I was introducing this young man. He may be here today. I was introducing Corey to the other guys, and, and I was just telling some facts about Corey. And I said, hey, I, I baptized him here at Fondery Church. And in a couple of months, I'm going to marry him, do his wedding. And I just kind of off-cuff, I said, I, I, I bet one day, Corey, I'll, I'll bury you. And Corey's like 25 years younger than me. Everybody laughed, but, but Corey. And... Uh, But, you know, we don't know, do we? We don't know when it'll come. Years ago, it was a you know, a big part of public uh, fascination and intrigue, you could go on deathclock.org. I guess you could still do this. De- Don't do it during the sermon. Deathclock.org and they'll ask you a variety of questions about yourself. Do you smoke? Are you overweight? What's your stress level? They'll ask you if you're single or married, if you've eaten a, a burger at the fair, uh, you know, the donut burger at the Mississippi Fair. They'll ask you a variety of questions and it'll spit out when you'll die. Years ago I did it and it told me I would die April, almost in this day, April 22nd or something of 2053, I believe it was. That's when I'm supposed to die. But uh, I was hoping you'd kind of collectively just grow sad with that, that I could hear it in the room. But we don't know, do we? We don't know when and we don't know how. I was reading this week and learned that churches in colonial America, particularly in the northeast, the New England states, the mid-Atlantic states, the eastern seaboard, the deep south, even to the Midwest, a lot of churches back in the day would build uh, cemeteries in the front of the church and I think you've, some of you have nodded your head if you've seen that or you've seen cemeteries on the side of a church. Uh, we don't do it much anymore, but that was kind of the thing. Now, question, what's your guess on that? Why would, why would they do that? The idea is that you would understand when you come to worship that you, you have to die to, to, to get life. Do You, you pass through death to get to life. And maybe it's this reality that we uh, don't want to sweep it under the rug. We want to keep it in front of us. Psalm 90 verse 12, God teach us to number our days. How, how long do we have? When will I die? How will I die? I want, to, I want to apply my heart to wisdom. I do an awful lot of weddings and I'll sit down, uh, thanks to Laura McAlpin, she does all the pre-marriage prep and she's a phenom at it. She does the prepare and enrich because we don't, we don't want to just perform wedding ceremonies. We want to equip couples to get married and you know then you're on your own. But Laura will sit down with him and work through several sessions, okay? So um, if you're interested, that's going to be you one day, and this is your church home, and Laura's great at that. And I I got the easy part. I do the wedding. Before the wedding, I'll sit down with a couple, and we'll talk about the weekend and the vows and all that. If I'm going to go to the reception or not, I always go to the rehearsal. Rather, I always go to the rehearsal if there's a free rehearsal dinner at a nice eating establishment. But. We talk and I ask him, hey, what kind of vows do you want? I love it when a bridegroom's don't care, right? He's just renting a tuxedo. But the bride has a lot to say and her mother about the wedding. And I'll say to her, I'll say, hey, do you want traditional vows? I love it when the bride will say, oh, R.G., you got this. We trust you. Just do your thing. And then, but some want to talk specifically. And I'll ask him, do you want traditional wedding vows? And there's that part at the end. I always ask a couple. I'll say, hey, do you want at the end, do you want me to say, till death do us part or for as long as we both shall live? Now, what would you guess? What did the couple? Ten out of ten times, that young bride will say, "For as long as we both shall live." She's like, "Oh no, yeah, death. No, don't talk about death. I don't want to talk about death at my wedding." And we just don't want to, do we? It's just not what we want to do. And one of the tremendous responsibilities and one of the high honors of doing what I do is being with hospice. And it's happened many times when I'm working with hospice and I'm with a family. And I can tell you that there's two extreme moods or mentalities or spirits in a room when someone is about to depart. And on one extreme, there's the joy of letting go that a family has. And on the other, there's the despair of holding on. And see, if you live well, you can leave well. If you live well, you can leave well. I want us this morning... I want to say to you passionately and I want to say to you boldly that you don't have to fear death. And you don't have to fear death because of four words that we all read aloud together. These four words on the screen again now. He is not here. And I want to say three things about these four beautiful words. He is not here. I want to talk about the historical, uh, the historical reality. Then I want to talk about the help for today, and then the hope for tomorrow. The resurrection is a significant event, the most significant in the history of the world. It's why a lot of us, I would say most of us, dressed up, and y'all are looking good, by the way. It's why we dressed up and came here today. Some people are confused and think Jesus came to give good advice. Anybody think that way? Jesus came... To give good advice. Look what Mark 1, 14 and 15 says. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's what it doesn't say. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee giving good advice. It says he proclaimed the good news. What's the difference? Giving good advice is telling someone how they should live or how they should act. News is an announcement that something significant has happened. And Jesus strangely and wonderfully was teaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's not going to be a king. Remember that ride in Jerusalem where they wanted him to be a king? And then they got forlorn and crestfallen because he wasn't going to be the king that they wanted him to be. And He spoke of this kingdom. He didn't come to give good advice. He came to share news. It was an announcement of something significant that was happening in their midst. This Easter story is a story of wow. Everybody say that out loud. Say wow. Wow. When's the last time besides just now that you've said wow? We say it at birth. We say it at death. We say it in some magnificent moments uh, of life. Let me show you quickly three uh, quick pictures of people you may or may not know know of. This man's from the Netherlands. That's why he has a funny name, Wim Hof, and he scaled, almost dressed like this. By the way, he scaled almost to the top. Not quite, but almost to the top of Mount Everest in only shorts. And boots, he didn't, he's not wearing his boots in this photo. He thought he'd get a little loose, I guess. But he, was not, he, he didn't wear a cap, he didn't wear a jacket, he didn't wear gloves, and he made it almost to the top of Mount Everest. And people in science and medicine, I know this is confusing, but he figured out some almost supernatural way to regulate body temperature so that he could do that. And when we hear stories like this, we say, wow, here's another guy. He's a five foot five Frenchman. His name is Elaine Roberts. And his mother, after he was arrested for the fortieth time, his mother tells a story that he was fascinated with monkeys and squirrels growing up. And Elaine Roberts, this five foot five Frenchman, has scaled the tallest buildings in the world in New York City, in Singapore, yes, that one in Dubai, and he does it without the aid of rope and harness. Are you kidding me? Wow, huh? Here is a man that some of you've heard of. This guy named Dean. He's an ultra marathoner. I got an ultra marathoner in my small group. These guys are not right. And Dean ran fifty. Uh, he ran fifty marathons in fifty states over fifty consecutive. Days And we hear stories like that, and what do we say? Wow. We say, wow. In October of 2014, where were you? The month of October, five years ago, what was happening in Mississippi? Anybody know? Hint, the cover of Sports Illustrated. Both Ole Miss and Mississippi State were ranked in the top four or five in the country. Y'all remember that? And it was the first ever BCS playoff. That was the year, and if they had stopped the season then... Uh, both of our teams would have played in the national championship, the four games. Isn't that amazing? Unfortunately, they, we had to keep playing that season, right? But in October, what did we all say? We said, wow. I was telling my kids, this will never happen in our lifetime, in your lifetime, ever again. But we said, wow. I've been married to Miss Susan for 23 years and 16 years ago, after living in Florida and California, she's from California, I brought her to Mississippi and she said, wow. <laughs> Different different kind of wow but she said wow this is a story of this is a story of wow like no other wow like whatever your wows have been there's no wow like the resurrection story what i love about it what i love about it is it's a story of the prominence of women in luke's account of uh, the others do this but luke in particular uh the women shared a story with the men and look what it says but these words seemed to them to the men an idle tale they thought they'd been at the beauty shop and they did not believe them. Let me translate that for you to our day. The women said, Jesus Christ is risen, and the men said, fake news. So women got it first. Did you, you remember the story we read in Matthew with Jesus? When they saw Jesus, what did he say? You remember? One word. Somebody. Greetings. Isn't that like the understatement of the whole narrative there? Greetings. What is it? What is it? You know, I, I don't pretend to know, but to me it's like, hey, I told y'all, I told you greetings. Jesus real formal there. And then they wash His feet, which is not very formal, but a beautiful expression there. This is a wow story. It's a wow story, but listen to me. It's a story that has historical reliability. It It, it is real and it happens. Could it be a hoax? Could it be a fable or a fairy tale? Could billions of people be deceived? Could I be deceived? Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter. It's the longest stretch dealing with the resurrection in all the New Testament. And Paul said, if this is not true, we are to be pitied among all men. Our preaching is in vain. Ouch. Could it be, could it be a lie? As, Someone who studied, someone who's debated and dissected and looked at it for years from a variety of angles. I'm telling you today, it takes a whole lot more faith to believe that it's a lie. So any good liars in the room, don't raise your hand. Any good liars in the room, I'm going to help you guys be good liars, okay? I'm the only pastor in America doing this on Easter Sunday. But here's how Here's how you lie. Here's how you deceive a whole lot of people. You've got to do a few things. This will help you to deceive a lot of people, maybe billions of people. You'll need to do three things, at least these three. Tell only lies that benefit you. Secondly, don't mention specific names and places, because what's going to happen there? Some of you have been caught in a lie, right? That's where you get in trouble. And then anticipate... Hesky fact-checkers. So the first one, tell only lies that benefit you. James was beheaded. Philip was imprisoned. Matthew was cut to pieces with a half-hammer, half-saw type of device. Mark was drugged in the streets till he died. Peter was crucified, Bartholomew was burned and crucified, John got the good end of the deal, he was exiled to the island of Patmos, all alone. Would you die for a lie? Would you face torture and ridicule and rejection all for a lie? Let me read uh, from friends of mine, Tim Mulhoff and J.P. Moreland. They wrote a book called The God Conversations, and they uh, quote an early church father who, through beautiful sarcasm, illustrates this point. Pretend the guys, the early disciples, gathered up and said the following, Let us band together to invent all the miracles and resurrection appearances which we never saw, and let us carry the sham even to death. Why not die for nothing? Why dislike torture and whipping inflicted for, for no good reason? Let us all go out to all the nations and overthrow their institutions and denounce their gods, and even if we don't convince anybody, at least we'll have the satisfaction of drawing down on ourselves the punishment for our own deceits. Second thing, first thing, you're only going to tell a lie that benefits you. Secondly, don't mention specific names and places. When Jesus rose, we know that He had breakfast at the beach. We'll talk about this in a minute. But He appeared to, to guys. He appeared to women. He appeared to over 500, we're told. Here's how Mark 15 puts it. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now this is a prominent figure, follow me. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taken him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. This particular Joseph was one of the most prominent people in the Jewish world. He was one of 72 on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is like uh, our Supreme Court. These were prominent, very prominent people. Specific names get mentioned and that's when lies get discovered. Anybody remember a man named Chuck Colson? I'm throwing something out to the older women and men in the room. But Chuck Colson was on Richard Nixon's staff. He was on his cabinet and during the Watergate scandal. And these guys, Chuck Colson and John Dean, were 12 men who carried out a lie, and it didn't last for long. And Chuck Colson, among a few of them, went to prison. and uh, Christ got a hold of his life and he studied the resurrection and the the could it could it be a hoax could it be a lie from that very angle of how could 12 men in modern day break and not be able to keep a lie and he studied it and looked at it and said it just seems impossible and to talk about pesky fact checkers Be a preacher. Stand in front of hundreds of people every Sunday and drop some illustrations and stuff. People are going to check your facts, right? You know that anybody, a professor, I see a professor, Dr. Smith over here, if you do public speaking, people are going to check you out. And there wasn't a Google back then, but there was a close-knit community. And there was a Jewish community, hear me, that they had a vested interest in the resurrection, the claims of the disciples not being true. They had a vested interest because it contradicted their deeply held religious beliefs. And it set them back. It, was, it got in the way of their social and political power. There was every reason in the world for the elites, for the intelligentsia, for the dignitaries and luminaries and important people of the day to make sure that if this wasn't true, it wouldn't be true. From who, who guarded the stone to the whole story it is historically reliable he is not here it's a historic reality secondly it gives us help for today paul would say this one of the early followers the man who wrote much of the new testament he would say in romans 8:11 if the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised christ jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God in you, Peter would say before being burned at the stake, God in you, the hope of glory. By the way, when the biblical writers wrote about hope, they never wrote from enjoying favorable circumstances and they never really wrote to people who were experiencing great circumstances. They never talked about hope like we talk about hope. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope I get this, I hope I get this, I hope I get this. this. They always pointed to a person. In John's gospel, very interesting, I cheated the 930 of this, but in John's gospel, John records that the first words of Jesus that were spoken were, what are you seeking? And after the resurrection, John says the first words of Jesus, whom are you seeking? We can waste all of our lives on the what, the what, the what, and not the who. The resurrection story has historical reliability. And it has help for today. He can live in you. A guy named P.T. Fortsmith said the following, If within us we find nothing above us, we succumb to what is around us. Let me give you a minute for that. If within us we find nothing above us, we succumb to what is around us. Christ wants to be real in us. He wants us to experience Him. When I sit down with someone who's a cynic or a skeptic or wants to know what I believe and why I believe it, I don't breathe heavy anymore. I don't sweat. It's not my job to win any arguments through impressive expositional argumentation. It's my job to love and it's my job to tell my story. And so I talk about the historical credibility of the Jesus story and I share about my personal experience. A God who is with me. A God, even during pain and silence, I can know His presence. And I've got to lean in and have faith in what He's doing in my life. Peter, it says this in Acts 2 about Peter. There's a quick turnaround. It says, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. He's about to preach the greatest sermon ever preached outside of Jesus. Three thousand people are going to come to faith in Christ. And what do you do when you come faith in Christ? Some of you need to hear this. What do you do? You get baptized. What must I do? Repent and be baptized. Some of you need to take that step to be baptized. Jesus wants you to. What's remarkable about this Peter guy is you remember when Jesus was arrested, the disciples, his closest followers, you know what they did? They scattered like scared school children. What do you do when you failed? What do you do when you're scared? You probably run and hide. I told the 930 congregation this morning, I you know, I've made a lot of doozies when it comes to failure. Like if we had time, I could tell you my top five and you'd have trouble looking at me. You'd laugh at me and just feel badly for me. If I told you my top five failures, what's your top five? What's your top failure? And I don't know all of you, but I know for everybody, when you fail, you want to run. You want to get out of Dodge. You don't want to be seen. You want to go to that place. And Peter had run and he had hid And he didn't just run and hide. He denied. And he didn't just deny. He denied three times. And some of you know John tells the story, John 21, where Jesus said, hey, bring him to me. Oh, and Peter. Remember, he was in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. There's a lot of confusion because of churches, especially churches who get institutionalized. And God protect us from being an institution. Let us be a movement. But churches get funny about this and, we think there's not a place for second chances. And we snub our noses and we form opinions and have conversations. And this is the place for people who failed at their worst to be brought in and to be loved. And that's this story. That's the God who helps. And so the story of Peter was wow, what an abject failure. But you know what? I've got room for you on my team. In fact, Peter's testimony, his story to me is this. Jesus can help you today and He can move you from being a coward to a coach. And that's what we see. The same city with the same mob that arrested Jesus. Peter was right there and somehow he had the boldness. He went from being a coward to being a coach just like that. What happened? It was the power of the resurrection. I say it often. It doesn't even have to be Easter at and Church for you to hear me say, the one person, the one man in the history of the world who predicted his death and his resurrection and pulled it off, I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. And Peter saw it. The word hope is used 71 times in the New Testament. It's used one time before the resurrection and 70 times after the resurrection. And Peter is living that out. He has this hope. I see it. I see it in some of you. I see the change. I see the help that He provides for today. How many of you could sit here today on this Easter Sunday and say, I know this. You're not perfect. you got struggles. But you could say, I see Him. The resurrection story is a part of my personal experience. I know His love. And I know His forgiveness. Many years ago, I was a single man um, living in South Florida. I had a roommate named Ray Pelletier. I traded Ray in for Susan. That was a great trade. But back in the day, Ray and I just, we lived in Coral Gables, a, in a great neighborhood, but kind of a, a dumpy place. And we had a skunk uh, one day come and crawl and get in our wall. And uh, Mama Skunk had uh, baby skunks. And it was, I mean, it was just rank. It was just nasty in every sort of way. We were very low budget and didn't, you know, I looked in the yellow pages and thought about calling someone to come in and they were too expensive or I I forget. But anyway, we were there and I just, it just got worse and worse. And at night it was so bad. Like we would just both leave our bedrooms and walk out to the living room and cry out in existential pain of, uh, God, where are you? But we... we, uh, even on a low budget, I went to uh, Costco or Sam's and I bought just a stock of uh, Febreze, and I would just spray it and spray it. Just spray, I wasted whole entire cans in a day or night, just spraying Febreze. And um, on a particular Monday, I remember it vividly. I, I got on an airplane to catch a flight to Atlanta, and I opened my backpack, and just skunk smell. Just I mean, oh, it just shot in my face, and inevitably, the businesswoman to my left said, <laughs> "I smell a skunk." I'm like, oh, no, Jesus, help me. I I smell a skunk, you know, 10 minutes later. We're 30,000 feet up there. Do you smell a skunk? And I just, I smiled and pointed at the guy behind us, you know. Here's the truth. Here's what's not at all funny is that we've got stink in our lives. We have sin, and it stains us, and it gets into us, and it has residue, It has collateral damage. It affects other people. And no amount of surface type stuff, no amount of spray is going to do the trick. You got to go in. There's got to be removal. There's got to be surgery. There's got to be a deep work. And that is the good news of Jesus to all who would follow him. That's a little different. No offense. I don't want to offend hundreds of people, but it's a little different than getting dressed up and coming to church on Easter. But it's faith, it's believing Him. Um, 243 times in the New Testament, faith is used as a noun. 243 times faith is used as a verb. That's a little perplexing for some of you who are thinking about it. But what's the idea there? I think the idea is just as e- it's equally important that what you believe becomes a part of what you actually do about what you believe. And Jesus wants to be for us our help. Thirdly, and quickly, he wants to be our hope for tomorrow. When America defeated England in the War of 1812, it was a time of civic pride and national unity and just good feelings. In fact, historians and sociologists refer to the years of 1812 to 1825 as the era of good feelings. People were united and feeling great about the country. What will historians and sociologists say about us in this era? When you think about political discourse, and cultural wholesomeness, and the gap between rich and poor, what will be said about us? According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, for the third straight year, I'm not sure you're aware of this, but for the third straight year, the average life expectancy has declined in America. That hasn't happened in over 150 years. And it's not heart disease, and it's not cancer, Those have actually gone down a little bit the last few years. It's drug abuse, the opioid crisis, alcohol related deaths and suicide. What people call the disease of despair. We need hope for today. John Hopkins released a study very recently said anxiety and depression is on the rise with every demographic in America. One writer calls it a peculiar American form of loneliness. But John Hopkins said it's really on the rise from 12 to 17. And my mama's here today, and I look back when I was 12 and 17, I was having a lot of fun. I was getting in trouble, but I was having fun. And I don't remember a lot of stress that I see kids under today social media and cyberbullying and comparisons. We're struggling with things that we didn't struggle with 20 years ago and we don't know what to do about it. There is a God who says hope is like an anchor for the soul. Let me say this, it's an advertisement. I do it shamelessly. But next week we're going to start a seven week soul series. Where we look at how God has made us, the deepest part of us. And next week in particular, we're going to look theologically and medically at anxiety and depression. I want to invite you to be here. I want to invite you to bring somebody with you. Would you stand? They're playing music and that's my cue. It's like an award show when the guy won't stop. The choir is coming up. Can I say, how about the choir today? Yeah. Now, if we got some Presbyterians, some Episcopalians in the house, you may, you may want to take back your clap. Because the choir, they're going to they're they're move a little bit right now. Okay, just, It's just a slight sway, so we hope you're not offended. And you're welcome to join them. We're going to sing a song about how he still rolls. The, the stone is still rolling. has nothing to do with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and those guys. has everything to do with the hope of the gospel message today. And so we want to invite you to sing with us. The prayer altar is open. And we're here down front. If we could pray for anybody, but you join us as we sing this powerful song?